0: I'm Carrie Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Geronimo Villanueva, who is a planetary scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Carrie. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: I'm I'm so excited to, to talk about this. We are recording on February 8th, 2024. And uh, I am currently at Albor University in Denmark on sabbatical. And they have this like amazing coffee machine. And this machine can make any combination of like espresso shot, milk, or chocolate. And so <laughs> so for the last several weeks, I've been looking at this option, which is cacao intense. And so I have a cacao intense for the first time to try. What are you drinking?
1: So I'm doing mate, yerba mate. So I'm from Argentina originally, and it's a common thing you you seep all the time from this kind of a. It's like a tea. It's like intense tea, and it's people are. It's like a, I think it's the smoking of South America, and a lot of people do that all the time. They're having all the time. They're always drinking this. So I don't normally drink mate, but as we as we talked with Carrie before, I say okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something exotic, a little bit exotic, and I have my mate this morning.
0: I appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. How's your mate?
1: It's good. It's good. How is your cacao intense?
0: It's pretty intense, I have to say.
1: It's intense.
0: (laughs) They're not messing around, but it is delicious. It's just like a drink of molten chocolate, so I have no complaints. (laughs) It's a little bit of a problem, I think, for me that this is right outside my office (laughs) for six months. So now we're going to talk about solar system observations with JWST, and I think that Most, maybe all of the listeners have heard about JWST um, or at least seen some of its fantastic images, but just in case they haven't, can you tell us what JWST is?
1: Yeah, JWST actually has been for for anything, for astronomy in general, has been fundamentally game changer. So it's a telescope that started to operate, let's say one year and a half ago in June, 2022, has been in development for almost 20 years from the concept and then it materialized. And it's a huge telescope let's say twice, three times bigger than Hubble. And, but it's not only the size, which is also resolution, but it's also the, the is in the infrared. That's the main thing, it opens the window in the infrared. We can do a lot of stuff with ground-based telescopes, but then there are some areas in the infrared that we cannot do. So James Webb, being a super cold telescope in space, allow us to do astronomy as never before. And that's why there's so many for us, for astronomers has been great because we can, you know, explore things that never seen before.
0: And in just this year and a half, there's been so much to cover that I just want to say we won't cover all of it, but you actually used JWST to observe a plume from Saturn's moon Enceladus. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So the, the good thing about this telescope, as we we're saying, every time you point to something in the solar system that we think we know everything, we make a new discovery. That's a beautiful thing about this, this telescope. And so one of the great things is when this was conceptualized, this telescope, Heidi Hammel was assigned like the solar system expert. And she gave us, she was given 100 hours to do science. And instead of hoarding the hours, she said, I'm gonna invite the community to do stuff. And she created this program for ocean wars. So I was taking care of the ocean wars, which is Europa and Enceladus. And we were just giving like test hours, so let's say 0.4 hours, see what we get, try all the instrument modes. And we went to en- Enceladus and we took data and it was beautiful. We we saw the plume. I couldn't believe it was so easy. I mean, you can see this huge plume that it was, Enceladus was a single pixel in the detector and the whole image was packed with water. Uh, and you know the plume, but you also see the torus of water behind the moon. It was just it was crazy. It's just crazy, that telescope. Yeah.
0: And can you talk about the science that you got out of that image?
1: You now, when you think about these ocean wars, the main thing you want to understand is the, I would call the chemical diversity. When we think about life, habitability, we are looking for sources of energy, we're looking for chemical diversity and the right temperatures and pressures. And we think that in those oceans, things could be interesting, but we don't know much about the chemical diversity. We were lucky with Enceladus because Cassini managed to fly by and took some data, but it was only during that time. So we wanted to get more data with James have to see what happens after all these years. So we were looking for water and many other compounds. And we saw that water plume is huge and it was great. We actually understood more about the outgassing rate and actually it pre- appears to be steady. So it means that the release of water is to be constant or relatively constant within decades, which is pretty cool. But we look for other molecules and we didn't see them. And we're talking about 99% water. So it is definitely, I mean, it's interesting, but It lacks some of the, you know, the other compounds. You know, it's not like a comet. Comets have a lot of water, but they have all the trace gases. It definitely is much more rich in water than other compounds.
0: Previously on the show, some scientists have talked about how they would love to send a spacecraft through the plume to sample it. And obviously that would be super interesting and a close measurement of what's actually in there. But it is amazing that you can get all this information from a telescope that can also do a ton of other things. And I think that's really cool about this result. Can you talk about kind of the difference of the information you could get from your image versus the information that maybe something flying through could get?
1: That That is a, actually a great point. And I think all these things are complementary. What I do is remote sensing, what I call astronomy, which is pretty much taking data, things that, from afar. And it gives you a glance what's happening. You tend to look for simpler molecules. Let's say you can detect in a water, which is H2O, and there are three atoms only. Then you can also look for, you know, methane or other compounds, which are tend to be smaller molecules. Methanol, even though they, they tend to have a lot of atoms, but they tend to be relatively small. If you want to really know, you know, complex molecules, you're looking for, you know, lipids, or you're looking for more complex, you know, amino acids, things like that. It's very difficult to do from remote sensing. So that's when you want to go to, go in situ. And when you go in situ, you can have these mass spectrometers. And you can even add more, more complex instruments like GCMS, gas chromatographs. And then you can look for more complex compounds. If you ask me, first we do astronomy, we find out where the cool places are to go. And then you send these in situ probes to do these deep studies. They can do probably more sensitive investigations. So I think they are definitely complementary. And, and it's nice that you know, James Webb tells, hey, the plume is there, it's active. So yeah, definitely we'll just go there because by the time you get there, probably is going to be active. It was not just a lucky moment for Cassini. It should be active for long times.
0: Yeah, because that'd be a real bummer if we sent something and it was not active. Exactly. There's also kind of talk that Enceladus, you know, is this ocean world and maybe it might be a place for life. Were you thinking that perhaps you might be able to see other organic compounds in this plume and then you did not? Or did you just think that wasn't going to be something you could see in this data?
1: Now that's a good point. So kind of the baseline was Cassini data. Cassini data had a mass spec and they did some measurements. There was some controversy around the time about some of the measurements, but in general what they found is that there was water and it was a specific point of the plume and they found trace amounts of other stuff. So one of the things we did in our investigation is to see, okay, we see the water, great. We uh, saw the rate, we can see the whole plume. And we wanted to see if we can map the other compounds and see if they disappear or what, what happened. But we didn't see the other compounds. And our upper limits or our detection limits are at the limit of what Cassini did. So we are consistent with Cassini. Because of that, now we want to integrate longer. We want to use James Webb again, but we spend more time on, on the measurements. So to see, we can start probing those other compounds like CO2 and methane at least.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. Are those? Observations proposed or scheduled because I, <laughs> I want to look for the news yes, release.
1: That's a good point. So yeah, they were proposed uh, and they were, they were, they would take place in June. I mean, this in the summer. Hey, because, so we are excited. We just, we we like to have it before, but okay, they're going to happen in, in, in the summer. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. Congratulations on that time. That's very yes. exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're all excited about that. Yeah.
0: JWST also played a key role in the Dart Impact event. Can you talk about that?
1: So it's a very important test. You know, we, one of the things about what we call planetary protection is to, first of all, do the inventory of what is out there—all the little asteroids that they could ever become, you know, come to us and become hazardous to Earth. But another element of that planetary protection investigation is to see how we, if we ever find them and if they're coming towards us, is there any way we can deter or can we come move them or redirect them in some capacity. So this mission was the first investigation of that. And it was actually it was a pretty cool idea because this actually is, is an asteroid with another one going around. It's kind of a, they call it a binary, but it's more like a moon, a moonlet, we can call it around it. And the idea was to see the exercise was to actually crash the spacecraft into the little moon and see if we can modify the, the speed of that, how the moon fly. And that worked pretty well. Actually, it was very interesting. And the measurement, because the thing was crashing into it, we took some data while we were, you know, with the spacecraft was crashing into it, but it was good to have data from afar. And so we had a big campaign of multiple telescopes. Among them was James Webb to see how that process looks like. And it was beautiful because you can see the flashing, you can see the actually the dust flying away. And I know some people have been working on the data. It's very challenging because you see the spikes. And you don't know if it's the spikes of the telescope. the telescope has some spikes, you know, photometric spikes because of the way the telescope is built. And, and then we don't know if it's a. So they were trying to de the images to see if we can understand more about the jets, what happened. But I, I'd say just just what that is great because so sensitive, you'd it, you can only understand about you can understand about the composition about the material being ejected. Combined with the, what we learned from the mission itself, is a very good synergy between the two things.
0: And this was a huge just technical accomplishment because these near-Earth asteroids move so fast, it's hard for these big telescopes to track them, but JWST actually tracked it and was able to you know, follow the asteroid as it moved to get a good exposure, which I thought was pretty neat.
1: Yeah, you're totally right. So when JWST was designed, they decided to be, they could follow Mars at least. Mars moves pretty fast, You know, it's very close to us, so it moves relatively fast relative to, to the background stars. And why that requirement? As they have this thing called a guide star system, they are looking at the stars. The, the field of view of that defines how fast they can take images and move around. So that instrument was designed to follow at least Mars, which is pretty fast. But DART was almost three times faster than Mars. And we were really worried that it's going to be, you know, we are going to be completely out of the confines of what we what this thing was designed for. But the James Web team find ways to accommodate. And as you were saying, Karen, correctly, I mean, this was an amazing success in that sense. They managed to to reach three times the speed limit that we had. It was it was done for this exercise.
0: I was thinking a little bit about this particular telescope where it was, as you said, it was being developed for decades. And so all of these astronomers literally had decades to think of all the good ideas. And now we're we're finally getting those results. Can you talk about what that feels like?
1: Yeah, this is the crazy thing. You know, when James Webb was designed or conceptualized, the exoplanets was not even a thing. James Webb now is the exoplanet machine. It is the, the main tool we use to characterize exoplanets, which is fantastic. When some of the ideas, even when we were pointing to some of these objects in the solar system, we had these preconceptions of what we wanted to find. But then it's, the data is so rich that you always get new discoveries. And I think that happened with Europa, for example. I mean, one of the main drivers for the, our Europa James Webb investigation was to look for plumes and look for gases. And the surfaces were looking for the ices, but the, you know our main focus was the plumes. But when you go to that data, that is so rich, there's so much in the data, and you realize the power of the data, then you make new discoveries. In this case, you know CO2 ices on the surface at specific locations on, which is a carbon source on Europa. And I think you know one of the things you realize, there are some specific knowledge base, you get new discoveries, even though you plan and you thought what you can do, you get always new things when when you point this telescope.
0: That's such a, a great example. Can you say why carbon on Europa is exciting?
1: <laughs> yeah, back to the, what we're talking about, uh, you know, habitability, you know, what we think about life. I mean, as we know, life is very difficult to define, especially we we only have one form of life, which is in our own planet. So we had to be cautious not to make an anthropocentric definition of it. But I mean, one of the things we did learn is that we need an energy source, we need a chemical diversity. Mainly, what we mean chemical diversity is that it has carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and other things. But at least the John chemistry should be diverse and the right conditions and a solvent. In the case, water would be a good solvent to all the things to these are the kind of the basic foundations. And in the case of Europa, we 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 know it has a crust of ice, water ice mostly, and then we think there is an ocean underneath. And it's difficult to access that ocean. And there, there have been some papers reporting plumes of that, but we, we don't know what those plumes are made of. There were there was some debate about the validity of those measurements. These are very difficult measurements done. So we said, let's, let's point James Webb and see if we can detect that. We didn't see the plume, but on the surface, we found CO2 ice in a specific form. And why we think it's that relevant? Because again, we, we know water, which is H2O, so water and oxygen is there but now we found a carbon source and the the other good thing is that it, this ice is not everywhere but it's in a specific place which is called the chaos terrain which is what we call it relatively new terrain is being being broken down by probably by geology so we think that you know maybe cryovolcanism some something is connecting with the subsurface ocean and it is exposing that ice uh, which it has rich in co2 so it is a way for us to infer that that subsurface ocean may have chemical diversity, or at least carbon, which we, we know carbon, you know, is relevant, important for life as we know it. So that was a very important discovery that came up with James Webb.
0: You know, surprises are really exciting and they make for a good story. But I also know that to get this telescope time, you probably wrote a pretty detailed proposal of saying what you thought you'd see. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe the feeling of your prediction being correct. Like, are you always like, hi, I did get that right? Or are you always like, oh, I wanted a surprise?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. <clears throat> so normally astronomers have to apply for time. It's a very competitive process. And sometimes you provide ideas. And I give an example. We we write a proposal, you know, as you saw about these beautiful images of Neptune and Uranus with the rings, even Jupiter has rings, and they're so beautiful. And you realize that James Webb is we call it the ring machine. It's a telescope that can point and it will see it the rings everywhere. So we well, let's say there's some hypothesis that you know Mars has rings too. Uh, and the last time they were searched, they were heard with Hubble. And it requires what well, we call a massive dynamic uh, contrast between the things. So we made a prediction that, you know, if we could detect those rings on Mars, and we asked for time, and we got the time to do that measurement. And that's an example that we went deep into the thing. We didn't detect the rings yet. I shouldn't say that yet, but we are working on a, on a paper about it. But the main thing is that, yeah, you, you pr- make a prediction and then you try to, you know, once the data arrives, try to see if we can mimic that and you get surprises. Sometimes you are close. In this case, we think we beat our prediction and we're trying to go a bit deeper. But I think that's the beautiful thing about science. You make a prediction, which is something that you know in advance what you expect, and then you prepare the observations to match that prediction. And it's a very beautiful experience when you get the data. Of course, there are challenges in the data, but that prediction process and that validation of the hypothesis is a pretty nice process in science, yeah.
0: There was also a discovery that showed water vapor around a comet in the main belt. Would you mind talking about that?
1: So what is a comet? First of all, a comet that we think is a, we call them like a protoplanet. It's, a, it's a something that it never became a planet. So these are icy objects that we think they were formed beyond uh, Jupiter and Saturn around, you know, around between all those planets there, as the giants, which are by nature reaching volatile species like, you know, water, methane, all things we tend to be in the form of ice, we think, in that part of the, in the nebula. As you get closer to the sun, the temperature is too high. Water, for example, is in the vapor form, and it's difficult to store volatiles that way when you form a planet. That's why our planet is a terrestrial planet, mostly made of rocks with a little bit of water. So, among one of the when we study planetary evolution, comets, we think are protoplanets. They were supposed to be. Aggregating into create something bigger, but they never became big enough to aggregate a lot of material. So they are kind of remnant little rocks made of ice and rock from that part. And then after some gravitational process in the solar system, they were thrown away everywhere around the solar system, create the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud. Over time, some of them come back to us, and they start to pass by and produce these beautiful tails, which are made of this ice is vaporizing. One of the debates is that we know those comets and we, we've we been studying them very well. We have some ideas about the chemical composition and all that, but there's another type of small bodies, which are the asteroids, which are another, tend to be rocky planets, mainly made, made of rock. They don't have so much ice. And this is the one we're talking about, the asteroids and the, the dart. But we think some of those, some of those are actually comets or are, have more water, or they appear to have more volatiles. We don't know how they came to be there's a lot of debate about the origin and, and all that. But the problem is that we think they are releasing something, and we didn't have the techniques to measure them before. So we pointed James Webb with all the power of that huge telescope, and we were looking for mostly water. And, and CO2, these are the main as you may see in an object like that. It's, a, it's so beautiful with the telescope like that, because you are thinking, well, maybe we see something, maybe we not. And you have to understand, we've been studying this for decades and we've never seen any molecules in those in those objects. And then you point Jens Webb after a few hours, boom, you see this huge plume of water coming out of the of this object that shouldn't have water at all. And that's why we call it main belt comet because they are in the main belt and they are very tenuous there are some objects have volatiles, mostly water, as we saw in this one. And I think if we see other objects that look like that, they behave like that, even if we don't have the power James Webb to point to them and make a measurement, we will be able to say, oh, pretty sure that that little guy has has water. And I think that's one of the learning curves that we learned from that James Webb investigation.
0: And you know, if you can find water in this main belt, maybe it's old, maybe it's different chemically than the the water on Earth. And the nice thing about the main asteroids is that it's not too hard to get with the spacecraft. So this kind of opens up other possibilities for future missions, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Exactly. Uh, and you know, there has, as you were saying, there has been a lot of debate about where the water in our own planet comes from. And some of the, the main, the main right apart, part, they were free mostly. One of them is that the comets, the other the other outer comets, we can call it our cloud, they deliver water to us. They were this idea the asteroids brought water to us, or maybe that actually Earth got it intrinsically when it was formed. And then the main belt comet, it helps to this idea of the asteroids or those objects which are closer to Earth, they may have delivered. And I think as we learn more about their inventory, how they got into where they are right now and how much the water they could have delivered to Earth, I mean, it helps to understand that. And this is not just a philosophical exercise of, oh, how water we got here. As we understand that the plants like us got water, it may infer that the conditions for life in another solar system, maybe more, maybe you maybe you're formed devoid of all the right conditions, but then you are deliver them externally. And I think that opens the idea that there could be a lot of more habitable places uh, than we may think. So
0: yeah, that's an awesome <laughs> possibility. Can you talk about the process of getting data from this telescope? If you go to a telescope to observe, you're kind of getting it right away. Do you like know when it's going to come? If it comes at like two a.m., are you ready to wake up, or do you like wait till the morning? Like, how does that feel? How does that go?
1: Yeah, this that actually that's that is 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 a beautiful experience. Actually, you know, my first data set that we got from Jansware was about Mars. You know, the typical way with astronomers take data. You can actually be in a telescope and you take the data, and the files are coming to you, and that's the, the straightforward. Most telescopes right now actually work in this COVID called Q. They have like a like a like a queue that everything gets taken. And then they give you the data after time. And just where it kind of operates that way, of course, you have much more anticipation of when you're getting the data. But you know, you know, they give you like a block. They tell you in advance, it may happen, as we know for Enceladus now, in the summer. So they tell you June, July, for example. And then as you get closer to that date, they say, well, it will happen this week. And then I think I think in the Mars way we find out like uh, one hour before. Okay, you did to be taken. It was like that. It's, like, it's going to be taken at you know or one day before. It was like twenty four hours, very, very short, close the, the date. It's going to be taken at this time. And and the, and the funny thing about this data because these are data test data we call it from these objects. It became publicly available in. The, so we don't even get any. They just go to a database. So you just have to Google it and it's there. So we, we knew the data, the data would become public. I mean, we arrived to the archive. So we went to the archive and, you know, searched for Mars and it was, yeah, it was there. And the data initially comes raw. And so what is raw? These instruments take images mostly and they store them in a very, you know, difficult to comprehend, I would say format because these are very, you know, complicated instruments. So at that stage, you know you can try to. If you have an image or something, you can do some basic stuff. But you may need something what we call a pipeline. And for for that, you know the STSI, which is the big entity that is controlling a lot of the things, that operations of James Web, and they also develop a lot of the data reduction, which are beautiful data reduction pipelines. So we use a lot of what they provide and then build on that. So, the database first thing it does takes the data raw, goes through that pipeline and produces some sort of what we call level one or level two data sets, which are much more accessible to a human, we could call it. And then we can download that data and then we have our own pipelines and stuff. But I have to say that initial pre processing may take another day. So, you may see the raw data. You may need to wait maybe a few hours. <laughs> and you're waiting, refresh until ref- you get the level one, level two data sets. And then there you can start doing more data analysis on top of that.
0: Can you talk about the science outreach associated with JWST?
1: So I think one of the good things about James Webb is that it's an inspiring for a lot of people because, you know, as we take these images, you know, you're rediscovering things that we think we knew already about the solar system, about the universe in general. I think it's a good way to encourage people to go into STEM and to see the value of space research. And uh, you know, I've been working at NASA, I was in other agencies, I was in Europe before, coming here, I'm from Argentina. And one of the things I always appreciate about NASA is that there's a lot of emphasis uh, to communicate the science of these big things. So, because we understand that this is paid by the tax system, by the people, we wanna make sure that they, they see the value of that. And I think one of the things I appreciate a lot from NASA and STSI, which is the one also handles a lot of the press releases, they had a, a very professional group of people there. They helped us, as scientists, to communicate these complicated measurements in an accessible way. So I think that James Webb done a great job in that. They had an excellent communication office, and I think that helped to, you know, all the things I've been telling you and some of the things that are, you know, all the beautiful graphics that appear out there is mostly thanks to them that they to the science that we did and make it in a a much more accessible manner. And, you know, it has always been a passion for me to communicate science. You know, as as I come from Argentina, it's a long path all the way to get here, that you you can, you know, you can communicate, you encourage people to do that. And I think having those materials, communication things, help us a lot to motivate other people from everywhere, also outside the US.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I think that the JWST outreach has been outstanding. I don't just see the images on my own little curated astronomer social media feeds. I just, I see them on the Washington Post and the New York Times. And so everyone's seeing them as well. And I think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I have to say, kudos to them. I think we can, we can all learn from that. i have to say I've been very happy with the way they, they did all this. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much, Dr. Villanueva for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about planetary science with JWST, we get to hear a fun fact about Geronimo.
1: This is kind of a fun fact. I love space and all the stuff right now, but I never thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. So, but I did like computers as an early kid. So when I was, I mean, I think when I was a teenager, I had a software company and I was developing software, actually professional software for hospitals and for eye surgery too. So I used that to pay college. And my objective at that time was to become the Bill Gates of Argentina. That is a fun fact. Of course, uh, that didn't happen. But yeah, that was kind of the idea at the time.
0: That's a basic fun fact. What happened to the company? Are you still like, is it still on the side? I, I left
1: it and I left it to a person that I was, you know, working with me. So yeah, I a lot of my successes in science have been because I'm a good coder. I've been coding all my life. Yeah, I like coding. I like computers, yeah.
0: Oh, that's so great. Thanks for sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And thanks again for being on the show. This was lovely.
1: Perfect. Thank you, Karen.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron 3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listen2spacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.